Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery. I'm your host, Chris West. Subscribe and listen to us on all the major streaming platforms, and go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything. And go to our website, recovereverything.com. Our guest today is April Pooley. Uh, April is a neuroscientist, an author, a piano player, dog owner. Uh, She's one really, really, really smart lady. She was wicked cool. We talk about a varying amount of subjects uh, from trauma, trauma education, music. We talk about April's book, Fortitude. And we talk about some science behind what happens to the brain during trauma. Just a quick heads up, this episode uh, gets really heavy. And there are some topics in this episode that may not be suitable for all listeners. So viewer discretion is advised. My co-host today is Caitlin Martinez. Enjoy. I've listened to several of your episodes and they've all been very good. So, Oh, thank you. I've, yeah, I really love it. Well, I guess we're just going to get right into it then. Um, on today's show, we have April Pooley. That's how you say your name, right? Yes. And what do you do, April? Uh, right now, I am currently the Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Michigan Victim Advocacy Network. So basically what that is, is a statewide organization that works with advocates who work with victims of crime. Um, So it's a lot of sexual assault and domestic violence agencies. And my kind of role there is to work on training advocates and people who provide services to crime victims. from the lens of being more trauma-informed, and so understanding how a victim's trauma affects their behavior and affects their ability to seek and receive services and to recover. Um, so we provide, we kind of develop protocols and training and webinars and all these things for people who work with crime victims. So this is kind of a new endeavor for me. I've just been doing this for about six months, um, and I'm really liking it so far. I'm so excited that a position like yours exists. It's really Oh, cool. I know. I am too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times um, people are out in the field just doing the best they can. So it's, it's really mm-hmm. cool that you're kind of bridging the gap between the research that exists out there that in academia that a lot of people can't reach and bringing it um, to people who are out in the field. That's really, really exciting. Right. Thank you. Yeah. So my background is in research. I mean, I came from the neuroscience field and I was researching the neurobiology of trauma and I had spent, oh, eight or nine years in a lab doing lab science and looking at brain slices and all this stuff. And it was really interesting, but I got to a point where I was like, I, it was hard for me to see how this was actually helping people. Mm. And so to be able to take that experience and that kind of knowledge base that I had gathered over my 
education and work and actually really be able to apply it to something so tangible like this, um, you know, with people actually working with victims. Um, it's just, it's really cool. Yeah. I can imagine. Was that a, um, a difficult transition from lab work and like being so close to what you're studying on like a, um, you know, kind of micro level, getting really into answering specific questions to, um, applying it out in the, the field? Um, I wouldn't say that it was difficult um, in the sense of being able to kind of translate mm-hmm. the information. Mm-hmm. It was difficult to make the decision to leave because I had invested, you know, almost 15 years into this kind of career of being this research scientist. That's what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. That was kind of part of my identity. And to get to a point where I became really disillusioned by it, um, and I kind of hit a wall and thinking this, the way that I'm spending my energy and my time, I didn't feel like it was worthwhile anymore. And mm. I think there were a lot of factors that kind of played into that. But um, it, that was really hard um, because I had a whole life kind of built around this research science world and to leave that and to leave all that behind um, it was kind of a risk because, yeah. you know, once you once you kind of leave something like that, I don't know if I would ever really be able to go back into it um, just because I've kind of lost some of those connections and I'm just not really in the world anymore. So, um, yes. but I, I a, can confidently say that it was community. a good decision. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. But it was, um, I just had this feeling like there's something else that I should be doing right now. I don't know what it is. Um, so I'm just going to keep my mind open to it and that's kind of how I came into the work that I'm doing now. I was just talking to people that I ran into saying, Hey, I'm kind of thinking about getting out of this research field. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, um, I just kind of met a few people who said, Oh, there's this going on and this going on and this going on. And, you know, this one thing that kind of came up just was the perfect opportunity at the perfect time. So are, are there, uh, yeah. a, a lot of foundations like this around the country that you like that you're doing? Um, no, I mean, I think it's, as far as I know, in a lot of aspects, the Michigan Victim Advocacy Network, what we're starting now um, is really kind of groundbreaking and new in the way that it's really trying to use evidence-based research to inform the practices of advocates and and people who provide direct services to victims on the ground and the way that we're evaluating it and documenting all of it. It's really new. It's really exciting. Um, And so, you know, like you had said before, a lot of people were just kind of trying to do the best that they could because there wasn't a lot of guidance out there. And so we're really trying to develop something that can be used around the country um, eventually to develop some kind of toolkit or guidelines or things that people can use to, really um, kind of meet victims where they're at mm-hmm. and and provide services that will actually help them. Because, you know, a lot of times it's they kind of meet a, a period of time where it's more about crisis intervention, but we don't think about the long-term effects of mm-hmm. trauma. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's something that we're hoping to really incorporate into the work too. Yeah, I mean, so when... I first got into the field. I'm a, um, a therapist, a marriage and family therapist. But when I first moved out okay. to Vegas, 
I worked with children who are in foster care and I um, okay. worked with them in their homes and in community settings and schools. And um, I very much felt like, oh, I'm in way over my head. I do. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot there. And there was a lot of trauma, of course. And um, oh, yeah. so uh, on a personal level, thinking back 10 years ago where I was at, I wish I had uh, been part of that network and got some of those um, trainings that you're putting on, because I think there's definitely mm-hmm. a need out there. And I imagine that what you're doing in Michigan probably ought to be replicated and brought to other states. What, mm-hmm. what, yeah. what does some of that training look like? Um, I mean, some of the training, and I think this is part of the reason why the network brought me in, um, some of the training, a lot of what advocates and service providers are looking for is information about the neurobiology of trauma. This is like a really kind of hot topic right now in the field. People want this information. They want to know what does trauma, you know, especially trauma like sexual assault, domestic violence, um, that kind of thing. How does that affect your brain and what does that mean? And what does that mean for a victim's you know, trajectory going forward. And just providing that information um, just makes a huge, huge difference. And so we do some, we'll do some training on that kind of thing. And how do you, how do you um, kind of recognize the signs of trauma in a victim and and how can you help? Um, Because we know, especially when victims go to the police, for example, um, there's a kind of a certain expectation of what people would think someone who had just been traumatized would act like. And if they don't act like that, then people might assume, oh, well, they're lying. They're, you know, making it up, whatever. And so to educate people to say, no, actually, trauma can look like this. It can look like this. In some people, it can look like hysterical screaming and crying. And some people might be totally stoic and calm. And it's because of the way that the brain processes trauma differently in different people. And so I think that's a really key part of it is just kind of some new, I mean, this is a really pretty new field mm-hmm. um, and, and just kind of wrapping this information up into a package that's useful for people um, is really, really helpful. And it's helpful to communicate that information to victims too. I mean, I know for myself, that was kind of the beginning of my recovery was when I had learned about post-traumatic stress disorder and PTSD. And that was just this huge revelation that, oh my God, this trauma that I had experienced actually could have impacted my brain. And it could be one of the explanations for the struggles that I was having. Um, I just, I had no idea. And that really, I think, was the turning point in my healing and recovery path. So... So, that's that's a piece of it that I'm really passionate about is kind of being able to communicate that information with people. So uh, I don't know this might be a weird question, but uh, what what actually is going on in the brain when when PTSD is is like forming? Yeah, well, that's you know a complicated question. I could talk about that for hours and hours and hours. I mean, I think at the simplest level. What happens when you experience trauma is that your brain interprets it as a a life-threatening event. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people don't think of something like a sexual assault or um, emotional abuse, those kinds of things as life-threatening, but your brain interprets them as life-threatening. And when you, if you experienced 
you know, that in a certain context um, or repeatedly or or you experience a certain number of traumas, there kind of seems to be a threshold that at some point it can permanently change your brain into kind of being wired into this state of your life being threatened. And so, you you know, you have this fear circuitry in the brain that it's kind of like if you walk out into the street and you almost get hit by a truck, you know, your heart rate increases, you, you know, become more hypervigilant you become more likely to run, you know, this is kind of the fight or flight response that can kind of become altered Mm -hmm. when you are developing PTSD after you've experienced um, a certain amount or a certain kind of trauma. And so um, that's kind of what's going on in the brain and untreated. I mean, that's really the issue here is untreated trauma over time. It really doesn't get better on its own. And that's kind of, the deal with PTSD is that, you know, after a traumatic event, everybody is going to be heightened to, you know, their, well, a life threatening event. Um, but with people who develop PTSD, that doesn't ever get better, um, untreated. And so it's just, it's a lot of kind of changes at the biological level. It has to do with hormones and kind of, you know, receptors in the brain and it has to do with your stress response and your emotional response and fear responses and memory. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of touches like every process in your brain and body. I mean, it'll affect your mood, your sleep, your eating habits, your relationships with other people. It's just this wide, widespread network because it's all about life-sustaining processes. Keeping you surviving. Yeah. So what's, you know, everything, all the most important things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what makes PTSD so, so hard to live with because you just can't ignore it. I don't know if you're okay with this, but I, I, I wrote down some excerpts from your book that oh, sure. that uh, <laughs> I'm kind of trying to work into this conversation and, and, and trauma. And uh, this one is from your book. Uh, it's when you talked about going back to high school after your trauma. Um, oh, God, yeah. Uh, how it says, the building that used to be so familiar familiar now scared me in a way that I couldn't understand. And with with my own anxieties and, and stuff, uh, something that happens to me a lot is when I, when I get in that state of panic, things that were very familiar no longer look familiar anymore or feel mm-hmm. familiar. And I'm just kind of curious, because I have never talked to a scientist before. Uh, <laughs> So I'm kind of getting at some of these questions, uh, especially ones that that jumped out of me in your book, um, like like this one, like what is what is happening to somebody's perception under such distress that familiar things can seem off? Yeah, I mean that you know I haven't. It's, it was strange to kind of hear my own words read back to me. I haven't um, read that book in several years. So well, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting oh, no. interview then. <laughs> as soon as you said that, it, but you know, this is kind of part of this trauma memory thing. As soon as yeah. you said that, you know, me going back to school and remembering that, um, the hallways and it didn't feel the same. It didn't look the same as it had just three days ago. It's like, I remember that. I remember what it looked like. I remember what it smelled like. I remember that feeling, um, my, my heart rate is increasing a little bit. It's just like, this is a really intense thing. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I never thought about it in this way, but my trauma 
didn't happen at school. It wasn't in that building. Mm -hmm. It was um, at a frat house. And this was, I mean, this would have been just like two and a half days later. And so I was really still kind of in that acute trauma um, stage. I don't know if we had said it yet, but what had happened was that I was raped at a, at a frat house um, that Friday night. And so this was the Monday morning back at school and I walked in the doors and it was just like everything just felt different. It felt scary. And I think part of that, you know, would have been when I was at the frat house that night before I was with one of my best friends and her boyfriend and another friend. And that was some, I had felt safe there because it was with people I knew. Mm -hmm. And so my brain, at, you know, before the, the trauma happened, my brain thought it was in a safe context. And then this horrible, horrible thing happened. And so that kind of couples the feeling of familiarity and safety with a threat then, mm -hmm. because I had felt safe with these people that I knew and it turned out that I wasn't. And so I think when I then go into a place like my high school where I had been for four years, that was my senior year, you, can't really you know, my reality. brain immediately feels like, Oh, this is a safe place. I know this place. Oh no, you could be in danger. Right. And so, um, I think that was a big part of it and it's not wrong. It's like, if you think about it, that's a pretty ingenious mechanism yeah. for protecting yourself is that if you're, brain can kind of couple those kind of threats with whatever information it can get. Um, you know, and maybe I wasn't safe there because, you know, if the way that things happened, it's just, um, it's scary. It's scary to think of the kinds of environments that teenagers and children can be in and to acknowledge that maybe they're not always safe. Oh. And when you feel that it's just, yeah, it's scary. Right. So. It sounds like like you were in a safe environment, something horrible happened, mm -hmm. and then you generalize that, right? So any yep. environment yeah. that you thought was safe now comes into question, and is you perceive it completely differently, and you, you right. respond to it differently. Mm -hmm. What do you think about uh, teenagers like partying now, like nowadays? Uh, do you, do you well, like, caution them? Um, well... I mean, I wouldn't caution, you know, I think a lot of times people will caution teenagers not to drink. Don't mm -hmm. go out and drink. Don't go out and party. It's dangerous. Whatever. Um, and that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But I think what people really need and what we don't talk about enough is specifically the types of things that can happen, um, especially related to sexual assault. I mean, this is so, so unbelievably common. Um, and it's not, it doesn't happen because you're drinking. Right. Mm. It happens, um, you know, and this is research that we know of that, you know, sexual predators will use alcohol to make people vulnerable. Um, but, and that's something that can happen. And I think that if I was going to talk to teenagers, that's what I would want to talk to them about and to talk to them about consent and what it means to be incapacitated in a state where you can't give consent, you know, because I know for me, I had been drinking at the time and I, and a lot of people told me, well, that's just what happens when you drink. Mm. You know, nobody ever told me that was rape. 
because right. you couldn't consent. And so those are the types of things that um, I think people really need to know. Yeah. Um, because that really prevented me from getting help because I thought, well, you know, because I was yourself. drinking and that was it. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think you're bringing up a really important point in a conversation that's starting to happen now about consent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a conversation that um, needs to happen for all people, right? So not just mm-hmm. women learning, like you have a right to consent. And if you're intoxicated, you no longer can give consent. But right. also, um, you know, that that men are aware of that too. And that, right. I mean, that they're, they're really tuned into what the, those conversations really look like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and even, you know, before you get to the point where you're, you know, at the age of having, you know, sexual relationships, I mean, you can talk to three and four and five-year-olds about consent and it doesn't yes. have anything to do with sex. It has to do about kind of bodily autonomy mm-hmm. and to teach kids, you don't touch someone else without asking and without right. them giving you permission and you don't, nobody else has the right to touch you. And that, you know, then gets into a broader conversation too about child sexual abuse and other things that nobody wants to talk about, but they really, I mean, it's really important mm-hmm. and it, information. And it happens all the time. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, it's just so prevalent, but right. And the correlation, it, mm-hmm. the correlation between childhood, um, sexual abuse and other adverse experiences in childhood and substance abuse later in life is so huge. Right. And so, you know, I know we're on a recovery podcast, so, yeah, you know, recovering mental health it, and other related topics. So, you can, yeah, you can say. yeah but can. it is, but there's a huge connection between especially early life trauma and substance abuse later in life. And some people say that it's, you know, a coping mechanism or self-medication or whatever. Um, the relationship is complicated, but it's there. And so I think, that was something in my recovery at the beginning that was really missing when I went to AA meetings, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and all they're saying is all you have to do is quit drinking and Mm -hmm. everything's going to be fine. And it's like, well, no, it's not because nobody's treating my trauma. And, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but I just knew that it it wasn't enough. It's not enough for me anyway. It wasn't enough just to stop drinking because there were so many other underlying issues. I have a question. Um, Mm -hmm. Like what makes what makes somebody blame themselves? What makes somebody blame themselves? Well, I think part of it is kind of the dialogue that we have in our society. I mean, we see this all the time. You you see reports of rapes on the news, and there's and you know on social media now that's even worse, where people do blame the victim all the time. You hear people saying things about well. What were they wearing? Why were they drinking? Why were they out so late? Why were they by themselves? And, um, you know, that places a certain amount of blame on the victim to have that responsibility to prevent being attacked. Mm -hmm. And I think it is. But for women especially, I mean, I grew up always knowing don't ever walk alone at night. If, you know, when I first got a car, it was like, Somebody taught me to put my keys in between my fingers in the parking lot, um, you know, especially at night in case somebody came up to me. Um, So, you know, girls are taught these kind of measures to protect themselves all the time from attacks. And so when you do get attacked, then it's like, well, I guess I didn't do 
enough of the right. things that people have been telling me to do my whole life. And also, you know, a lot of the conversation around sexual assault and, and rape, our kind of cultural script around it is that we think it's going to be someone, you know, a stranger in the parking lot or someone in the bushes jumping out. But it turns out that the vast majority of the time, like 80, 90 percent of the time, it's somebody that you know. And and that is something that people have a really hard time acknowledging. Mm-hmm. But how can this person that you knew and trusted and this person who is, you know, somebody's child, somebody's sibling, maybe an important person in the community, how could they be capable of doing something so terrible? And people just don't want to believe it. And so they it's it's much easier to blame the victim and to kind of say that there's something fundamentally wrong with this person that this thing happened to them instead of the person who actually the, is responsible. Right. Yep. There, there, so you're talking about when a, an incident like this happens with somebody, you know, and as opposed to a stranger, it seems like, uh, it's more, uh, I mean, it's both, they're both damaging, but it, it, it seems like psychologically it'd be a little more damaging with somebody that you knew than mm-hmm. somebody you didn't know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And there's kind of this whole line of research on betrayal trauma. And when a trauma occurs, um, that involves a betrayal of trust, which, you know, if you know somebody, even if it's just an acquaintance, or, you know, someone you're on a date with, you have some sort of level of trust that you have developed with that person. And when they betray that, and assault you, um, yeah, that is, that in itself is traumatic. And then on top of that, you know, whatever they're doing to you is also trauma. Um, but I think that the impact of that goes back to kind of how I felt that safe context of my high school all of a sudden turned threatening. When someone you trust then assaults you, then that can generalize to all your other relationships. Everybody that I trust now has become a threat. And that's something that, I mean, is has a huge impact on the way that you interact with the world and you need social support to kind of heal from things like this. But when it's, when your trauma kind of has happened in the context of what was supposed to be social support, then it can be really hard to get that. And people can isolate themselves and, you know, start drinking and start, you know, doing other kinds of unhealthy coping mechanisms or whatever. This leads me to another excerpt from your book. Um, it says not being believed when I told somebody the truth of my reality was mm-hmm. one of the most disempowering feelings uh, one that was difficult mm-hmm. to survive. And the, it seems like this is kind of like a, uh, a form of collective unconscious gaslighting. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Absolutely. Um, you know, and a lot of people refer to that not being believed and or being blamed um, as the second trauma. And I know I've heard from therapists who say that over and over and over again, there are clients who have survived horrible, horrible abuses and assaults and traumas will often say, I could have survived that, but what was the worst was people not believing me or people blaming me. And it really is like, I think it comes back to our need for social support. I mean, we really need this kind of social network 
for our own survival. I mean, it's just humans are social creatures and we need that to survive. And so that kind of collective gaslighting, like you said, is is almost a, a threat to survival in itself because that is like cutting you off then from your social support. And it's it's very disorienting and scary and and awful. And I do wonder if I had told somebody and they believed me and I got the help and support that I needed, you know, what would my life have looked like? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I could have, you know, recovered from that without the next 10, 12 years of misery. (laughs) I don't know, but. I'm wondering April, if for listeners, um, if you have, a piece of advice for them if someone they know trusts them with mm-hmm. you know coming to them and saying hey this happened to me what what might be an appropriate or helpful response in that situation well i think first and foremost would be to believe them to you know i mean that can even be the first thing out of your mouth is to say thank you for trusting me with this i believe you that that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is really, it's, it's so huge mm-hmm. to, to hear that from somebody, you know, because a lot of times, and I think I even mentioned this in my book, it was actually the second time I was raped. I was in college at the time. And I told my boyfriend and his, the first thing out of his mouth was, well, are you sure it was rape and you mm-hmm. weren't just drunk and had sex? And that is a form of disbelief. He's yes, saying, are you course. sure? Yeah. Are you sure what you know what happened to you? And that, you know, I can more easily make a list of what not to say. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, but yes. the most important thing is, is to believe. Mm-hmm. If someone's telling you that something horrible happened to them, it is unbelievably unlikely that they're, that they're making that up or that they're, right. they were mistaken or confused. It's, you know. Does, you know when you've been violated. Mm-hmm. Does, mm-hmm. Is this... Is, is this part of like what is taught in in your uh, like workshops? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, advocates and therapists and service providers who work with victims absolutely get that on, and are on board with that. Where we run into issues is with um, law enforcement and the criminal justice system because that whole system is set up where you're innocent until proven guilty. So they have come at this from the perspective of, um, you know, and you're innocent until proven guilty as a, as a, as a rapist, the rapist is innocent until proven guilty. So they have a really hard time automatically believing victims. So if a victim goes to the police department and says, you know, this happened to me, a lot of times investigators will take the stance of not believing them first, because that's what they've been trained to do. You try to see if you can exonerate the, you know, perpetrator or whatever. And we have found that that is so incredibly damaging um, to victims. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to train law enforcement on how to interview victims in a way that doesn't um, blame them Mm -hmm. or disbelieve them. Um, Just you know, you don't have to say, you know, it's not really law enforcement position, you know, position to say, oh, I believe you, I support you. But they can ask their questions in a way that isn't so um, defensive and threatening, you know, just to say, you know, tell me what happened to you. And then they write it down. That's all they need to do. Right. Um, but when they say, what were you wearing? Why were you wearing that? Why mm. were you drinking? 
um, it, it becomes really, really harmful. I, I saw in a different interview that you did that uh, a lot of victims will tell somebody what happened, but then like an authority figure, but then ask them not to say anything beyond. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious on mm-hmm. why, why that's, why that's a pattern. Why does, why does it happen? Well, I think they do want help. Um, we all want help, but the, the problem is that we haven't been shown a society and a system that has proven itself to consistently help victims. And we know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew at the time, if I went to the police, I knew what they were going to say to me. I knew that they were going to blame me for drinking and, and tell me that I was, you know, just trying, that I just regretted it. And, you know, all these things that you hear. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we were to create a system that was really supportive of victims where they knew if I went to the police or if I went to the hospital, they would help me, then that pattern of, of not wanting to make a report or not wanting to um, disclose to certain people would, um, would get less over time. But it is, it is really true that there are a lot of systems that, that fail, especially survivors of, of sexual trauma. Yeah. When, when you said that April immediately, what flashed to mind were like three or four, um, media stories of, of, you know, people and more, the list goes on and on of people who, um, have not been believed who, whose character, um, has been called to question when they've Mm -hmm. experienced a trauma. Um, and, it's, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that, that people um, who experience sexual assault are scared to come forward because they haven't been, they don't, they don't have in their Rolodex of, you know, history and things that they've seen um, that, that they'll be trusted, believed and, and helped. Right. And, and I think there's another aspect to it too, is when it's so common that you know the person who assaulted you a lot of times people don't, they might be afraid that that person or their um, friends will retaliate against them. And also a lot of people just don't want that person to get in trouble. Um, And we see this, especially in children who, if it's a caregiver abusing them, they don't want their parent or their sibling or their grandparent or whoever, they don't want that person to go to jail. They want that person to stop hurting them, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to get them in trouble because then that makes them responsible for, it makes you feel like you're responsible for causing even more pain because you've split up a family, you've ruined somebody's career. Um, you know, so there's just so many implications, um, for victims who come forward and talk about what happened to them, that it, it is a really, really, it's a huge deal. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's not as simple as, He's just saying, oh, something bad happened to me. And now there's all these great systems in place and everything is going to be better now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's just so many implications for what happens next. And it's scary. So, Do you think uh, like religion and, and church, church ethics also play a role in like whether or not somebody wants to speak out? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so I, I grew up very religious, um, uh, evangelical Christian community. And I, I, I can see now the kind of impact that that had on me, um, that 
experience that I had in high school, I remember thinking, well, I'm not a virgin anymore, so I am now not worthy of God's love. Mm -hmm. I mean, because there was this whole thing that, you know, my whole life they had been preaching about virginity and purity and how that's like all you have as, as a woman is you have to save yourself for marriage. And if you don't, you're, you know, this just dirty, used, sinful thing. And they never talk about that in the context of sexual assault. And so, I mean, I think that just that piece of it alone was so huge that in that was another reason I think why I blamed myself and thought that I had done something wrong because, um, you know, I was no longer pure, Mm. like the teachings of my church had told me that I had to be. And so, yeah, I didn't want anybody at my church to know what had happened to me. And so that's one part of it. Another part of it is when abuse occurs within the church. Mm. And that was happening at my church as well. There were people who are abusing children and myself included. And that was kind of something that I didn't talk about until years later. Um, the, the sexual abuse as a child and the church will cover that up and say, well, you know, we don't need to tell anybody because it's between you and God and God will, you ask for forgiveness and then everything's fine. And so, yeah, there's a huge, huge kind of um, relationship there between religious and spiritual teachings and church power structures, especially that can have the capacity to be really great healing forces, but unfortunately can also do really great harm when they're not used in the interest of the vulnerable people. From from what I read in your book, there there were layers upon layers of um, like social guidelines that kept you from speaking out. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, um, like somebody in a, in a similar situation, what, what can somebody do? Like, is it is it just education? More of the kind of groups that you you've started. I mean, I think these layers. I of, mean, I think you're. Right. Those social guidelines. I mean, that's absolutely, you hit the nail on the head that we have developed a society where the guidelines are that you don't talk about these things that happen to you. And so that's what we need to change. And I think it is changing, Um, you know, especially when you see what's happening with the Me Too movement and you see all of these people coming out and talking about what happened to them. I think that's the first step. Um in creating a culture where people are able to talk about their experiences. It's not enough just to see a bunch of people talking about it. You also have to be able to see a society that supports them. And I don't think we're quite there yet because, I mean, I still see so many harsh, terrible criticisms of the Me Too movement and people you know, just attacking these people who, you know, are sharing their most vulnerable traumas. And so, you know, in some ways, I think it's, you know, two steps forward and maybe one step back um, where we are opening up the conversation and now we need to learn how to actually believe and support, support people. A lot of this stuff just seems um, common sense. Uh, mm-hmm. And apparently that's not the, the case with a lot of people. Like they have to be explained like what not to do. Like, hey, don't do that. That's mm-hmm. not what you do. <laughs> like that's not how you treat people. 
It just seems I know. Like it's baffling. Mm-hmm. And which leads me to my next question is like, how do you keep yourself from wanting to be violent? Yeah. Me personally? Yeah. Because <laughs> my initial reaction reading your book, especially the second time it happened in the book, through my phone. Mm. And was like, what mm-hmm. the fuck is wrong with these people? Yeah. This is how I felt. It was, mm-hmm. it was, I had to put the book down for like 10 minutes and walk around. Uh, and I immediately thought like, how did, how did you not get violent or lash out in some way? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I did. Yeah. I, I lashed out at myself mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, because I di- I mean, that was all I knew to do. I think that I did have so much anger and violent urges. You know, I never would have called them that at the time, but it was just like, I had so much kind of built up and, but I didn't want to hurt anybody. That wasn't part of who I was, but I could hurt myself all day long. And it was almost as satisfying, I think, as throwing your phone across the room or punching the wall or punching someone else. It's like, I can direct all of that at me. And, you know, over the long term, it obviously doesn't help at all. Um, But I think that's an important thing to talk about. And it's part of the reason why people don't want to talk about these things is because we don't know then what do you do what do you do with this knowledge that there's so many people out there who are hurting people and it's people that you know and love are hurting people how do you hold that um it's really hard i think maybe the whole world should just be in therapy and (laughs) making art and music i mean that's really what helps me is Mm -hmm. kind of art and music and dogs and just finding things good in the world to focus my energy on and to remind myself that there there are good things about being alive and I think that's really important. So I want to let you know that I haven't read an actual book in probably 10 years. Oh my. I I, I strictly do audio books but I, I actually read your book. I, I thought you should know that. Um, well, I'm honored. Thank you. The other thing that like really grabbed me was the way you described certain anxieties. And mm-hmm. I hadn't, I deal with a panic disorder myself and I had never heard some of the, these things explained in, in this way or described this way. Hmm. Well, the the name of your book, April, is fortitude correct Mm -hmm. and it sounds like it was impactful for you Chris like it was an important description of some some of the experience that you've had that didn't have words before well uh, like the there's one where you're talking about being on fire and 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 trying to put that flame out but also lighting other things on fire Mm -hmm. and yeah that was that was really an image for me you know, especially when I was really kind of deep in the destruction of my addiction, Mm -hmm. when I was just using drugs all the time. And I was just, I mean, I had been drinking for years and years and I was getting in car accidents and just being totally, totally destructive. And all the people around me are are like, what the hell are you doing? Like, don't you see what you're doing? And, but the truth was that I couldn't because it it was like I was on fire, like my whole body is on fire and I'm just flailing around trying to figure out what to do. So it's like, no, I didn't. I really didn't see 
how what I was doing was impacting other people until many, many years later. And then it was kind of like, oh, my God, what did I do? And it was it was scary to face that. And I think maybe that's one of the things that is so hard about getting sober is because then all of a sudden you have this clarity (laughs) that Mm. you may not want. It's really hard to um, have that realization that, oh, my God, I put so many people in danger. I hurt so many people. And, yeah, it's, it's really... It's really, really hard, but I have an interesting question. It's so you you spend all this time writing a book. You, you not only that this is your life, right? You mm-hmm. went through all this, and then a guy like me comes along and and reads it in two days. Is that weird? Is that a weird feeling that somebody can just like blow through your life in a two day period? <laughs> uh, no, no, it's not. Um, you know, and that's that's why I wrote the book because I. I think what's weirder for me, I think what would be weirder is for someone like you to meet me now, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm relatively stable and healthy and I've made a nice life for myself and have no idea where I came from. Uh-huh. And the way that people would see me now, not knowing my history, that feels really weird um, mm-hmm. because all of that is still such a big part of my identity and where I came from and, and why, who, why I am who I am. And so I think it takes some burden off of me <laughs> to just say, can you just read the book mm. and then I won't have to explain myself and then, and then, yeah. and then catch back up with me. Right. So then I don't have to go through explaining my whole life to somebody. Right. Um, makes a lot of sense. And I think that was, you know, I mean, I think the main reason that I, not why I wrote, I wrote it for myself because it was a really, I was just trying to wrap my head around my life. The reason that I wanted to get it published, I think was, to try to help people understand just addiction and trauma and all of these things in general and why themselves or the people they love are going through the things they're going through. Yeah. I mean, so no, it's, it's not weird. I I mean, I think anytime someone tells me that they've read the book, I feel, I feel really honored that someone would spend that energy with my story because it takes a lot to read a book like that. I mean, I read books, you know, on trauma all the time and it, it's, they're not easy reads. I think, you know, people would much rather read a comic strip (laughs) and, you know, and, or a fantasy book and, you know, just kind of go away and not face the realities of the world. So I think to have someone sit down and blow through a book like that in two days is really, um, it's actually, it's pretty humbling Mm. because a, a lot of people don't want to face those kinds of truths. I couldn't find your other book. Uh, it was on Amazon for like $200. <laughs> oh my God. That can't uh, be real. It was. You can look it up. <laughs> so I have a question about what, 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 how is the shadow brain different from fortitude? Because I couldn't get my oh, hands. So what ended up happening, yeah, was I wrote shadow brain. That was kind of the original manuscript version of the book. And I was trying to find a publisher to publish it. And I had sent out queries and um, things to, I think, like 40, 40 or 45 publishers, and nobody wanted it. And so then I just kind of said, well, fuck it, I'm going to publish it myself. And I self-published it. And then like two weeks later, I got a call from a publisher who wow. was interested in it. And so I was like, at first I said, no, I was like, really? I just made this decision that I'm going to self-publish it. And I was like really stubborn about it. <laughs> I was like, no, I already did it. I don't need you. <laughs> but then, um, you know, I decided, well, I think it'll probably be good because they'll be able to help me reach a larger audience. And they um, allowed me 
to work with an editor, really kind of cleaning it up, um, the language and the clarity of the story. And so that's, that's what, um, fortitude is. That was kind of the product of me working for six months with an editor, um, and just kind of reworking the structure and the language of the book, but it's the same story. Mm, okay. So how I, I, I learned of you is I, I was looking on YouTube and mm-hmm. your Ted talk came up mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, I've never talked to anybody who did a Ted talk. So <laughs> I'm kind of curious on how that came about, what it was like, how did you prepare? What was it like on stage? What was the response? Oh. Like? It was scary, man. I mean, there were like two, it, there were like 2000 people there. I had Ooh. never spoken in front of that many people. And I was, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't nervous until I think I was the second to last person to go in the program. And so just the buildup over the night, I was like, Oh my God, I got, I was so, so nervous. But um, the way that it happened was I was approached by one of the organizers of the event because I had, I don't know. I hadn't published the book yet, but I think I had been writing. I had been kind of gearing up to publish it. And I had been writing some articles in local newspapers and, and things about trauma and addiction. And so the the theme of that year's TED Talk was the will. And it was kind of like a will to survive or a will to move forward or a will to kind of overcome some kind of challenge. And so they thought that my kind of story would fit in with that. And, and I was just like, sure, I'll do it. And not really knowing what I was getting into. Um, but I have had, you know, since it's been on YouTube, I've had people contact me who've just come across it and they'll say, oh, I saw this and, you know, my therapist showed it to me or something. And oh, so wow. I think that's really, really cool that um, people kind of still have access to it in, in that way. But yeah, it was scary. <laughs> do you remember <laughs> to, like to get up and Walking out on stage? Not, not really. No, <laughs> it was kind of one of those things where it was like afterwards, I was like, "Oh my god, did I even say any words?" <laughs> and then I saw the video later, and I was like, "Why do I look like I know what I'm doing?" Because <laughs> uh, it's like when you see the video, it's like it doesn't look like I. I don't look like how I felt. So that was really, really kind of strange. So that actually, like that experience, I think, gave me. Um, a weird kind of confidence that I didn't know that I don't think I would have had otherwise, because now it's like I go out or I go and, you know, talk to, you know, podcasts like this. And it's like, I know that like, maybe I feel nervous or maybe I don't feel like I know what I'm doing, but it's, it's going to turn out. Okay. Um, And so that was, you know, that was kind of a cool thing. And I think ever since then I've kind of, I've done things, I've done more things that are scary to me. Um, because I, I know that there are opportunities to grow. Right. On a personal and level. So, and it sounds like <laughs> it also um, has been very helpful for other people who have had yeah. similar traumatic experiences. Like, wow, mm-hmm. someone got up on a stage in front of 2,000 people and told their story. Like, that's mm-hmm. remarkable. I listened to a lot of Ryan Adams the last two days. Oh, really? I had never listened to him. Was before. that not something you you hadn't listened to him before? No, I had not. What do you think? I liked it. It reminded me a lot of a mixture between uh, Bob Dylan and the Boss. Mm. That's a good mixture. Music and and poetry, but mostly music. Um, 
it's just something that is really has always been a huge part of my life. And I think, I think there are certain things that in the human experience that I just can't put into kind of an easy narrative for somebody. And so sometimes when something that's more abstract, like a poem or song lyrics, just to me, it just kind of captures the ambiguity, I think, around just what it means to be human um, and and how it can mean so many different things at so many different times in your life. That's why I like that, because when you're you know, using something like that, it does. And I think that's such a cool thing about just all forms of art is that the art can stay the same, but its meaning changes over time um, in a way that other things don't. And so that's, I think that's really cool. I want to switch gears a little bit, April, because I, I want to ask a little bit about the research that you've done. Okay. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways that women and men respond differently to stress. Mm -hmm. Cause I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really why I got into this research is when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I was at the very beginning of my studies in neuroscience. And so I was kind of already immersed in this kind of educational field of learning about the brain and different types of things that can go wrong with the brain and mental illnesses and all these things. So I was like, PTSD, I thought that was just for veterans. I thought it was just a military thing. And so I was kind of doing my own research, just learning about it. And it really was like all of the research and information on it was only done really in men and in male animals and the kind of animal studies that they had done with the assumption that, well, trauma affects males and females the same, but nobody had actually tested that. And so I was like, well, how do you know, <laughs> you being the whole, you know, scientific community, <laughs> how do you know? Like, that's just a huge assumption to make, because I think to me, I just didn't identify with what I was reading, um, these experiences um, of other types of trauma. There was just like almost nothing on sexual trauma. And I just really wanted to know um, if it was true that men and women um, respond the same to trauma. And so that's what I ended up doing my dissertation work on. And it turned out that it's not at all. And there's a lot um, in other fields of kind of anxiety and other types of mental health issues. There are differences um, between men and women, but nobody had really looked at it in PTSD or trauma. And so I think, you know, what I had found is that it's not like there's a, a male form of PTSD and a female form of PTSD, but basically it's just your kind of biological makeup, your hormones, you know, including testosterone and estrogen and, and all of these kind of biological mechanisms of your body influence how you respond to trauma. And it's more likely that women after um, trauma will respond in a way that looks more like anxiety and depression mm. And men after trauma will respond in a more kind of externalizing way um, that looks more like, um, you know, anger and, the, you know, conduct disorder and, you know, hypervigilance and kind of there's just these differences. 
And, and I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that it, you know, it has implications, especially for treating and diagnosing trauma. Um, Cause I think a lot of times women will get diagnosed with depression or anxiety or personality disorders mm-hmm. and they're, and it's all trauma related though. And so they're not getting treated for kind of the root cause of the issues. And so this whole idea that trauma can look so different in so many different people and it looks different in children than it does in adults. And there's just so many factors. Um, it's not kind of the standard list of, you know, PTSD that you see in the diagnostic manual where it's like, Oh, startle response nightmares. You know, there's like, you know, a list of things, but there's so much more to it that Mm -hmm. was just ignored because nobody really bothered to research it. Um, so you talked a little bit about how women tend, um, are more likely to develop symptoms that might look like anxiety or depression. Do you have Mm -hmm. a theory or hypothesis about why women are twice as likely to develop PTSD symptoms after a trauma? Mm. Um, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I have a lot of, of theories and I don't think there's really an answer. I think it could, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's an answer, but not one that we know. Um, so yeah, like you said, women are twice as likely to develop PTSD after trauma than men. And the the prevalence rate of PTSD is twice as common in women. So it's like one in 10 women have PTSD and it's more like one in 18 or 19 men. And I think, I mean, I think it really has to do with the fact that in most societies, women are kind of the subjugated sex and women experience oppression in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and experience a lot of, a lot more um, kind of constant trauma almost um, throughout their lives. And so I think that there's just a... The, the trauma load on on women, I think, is greater, and so it's they they kind of reach that threshold of experiencing enough or severe enough trauma to kind of tumble over into PTSD. Because I think you know I had experienced trauma my entire life, and it seemed like it wasn't until I was seventeen and had that experience that was like this moment where it's like I crossed the line over into PTSD. And so um, there does seem to be some kind of threshold. And I think also the types of trauma that women are more likely to experience are more likely to lead to PTSD. So we know that sexual trauma is like the leading, the highest risk factor, Um, sexual trauma and like um, torture, like being, being held hostage and tortured. Those are the two most likely types of trauma to lead to PTSD. And so I, I think, you know, and we know how common sexual trauma is in women. So I think that's part of it, too, is that um, women are just more likely to experience trauma that leads to PTSD. And men are more likely to experience trauma that's more like physical altercations or car accidents or, or things like that, that just are a little bit differently interpreted by the brain, I think. Right. Do you do you get a, a lot of males that uh, reach out to you to talk about their own uh, sexual assaults? Like, is it is it obviously? Obviously, I feel like it's going to be less common. But yeah, I've I've had a few. I think sexual assault in men is a lot more common than we think it is, um, and especially in boys in in young boys. Um, and it's there's a lot. Men have a different type of stigma, I think, about 
talking about these things than than women do. And so, um, yeah, I have had a few um, men reach out to me. I think what's even more common, though, is that I'll have men reach out to me and say, this describes my wife and I understand her behavior more now. And so that's been that's been really common, too. So it's like in one way or another, almost everybody is affected by sexual trauma. We all know somebody who has experienced it. And so I think that it's, it's just so important for everybody to understand this. Have you ever got perpetrators coming to you and being like, I didn't know I was uh, mm-hmm. doing something wrong? Mm-hmm. And I have. Wow. Um, it's hard. And it's, it's something that I think is, it's really important that there needs to be a space for perpetrators to process that coming to that realization that they've hurt somebody and to allow some kind of mechanism for them to, I don't know if I want to call it redeem themselves, but to not hurt people in the future. And so this Uh is kind of, you know, like restorative justice or something where it doesn't mean that they're not being held accountable for what they did, but there needs to be a way forward to allow them to heal in a way that, they don't do it again. And, and when we don't allow them to talk about it, I think it kind of just perpetuates these kind of assaults. They just keep happening because nobody has the space to talk about it. But what I have kind of come to realize is the space for perpetrator kind of, I don't know if I want to call it healing or whatever. Um, it really, in the most cases, shouldn't be shared with the space of victim healing. Mm -hmm. And so usually when um, a perpetrator would come to me and say, Oh my God, I think I've, you know, done this to somebody and I don't know what to do. You know, I wish that I had somewhere to send them to say, Oh, here's a support group for people like you or, you know, something. Um, But I know that I don't have the capacity to, to help them through that as a victim myself. It's just like, that's kind of, a line for me yeah, right now. It's yeah. like, I, I can't do it, yeah. but I, I want somebody to, well, Chris, <laughs> somebody needs to. Chris just gave me a look cause I was making a facial expression because <laughs> as a therapist, I've worked with a lot of survivors of sexual assault, a lot of mm-hmm. kids who have experienced horrible things. And mm-hmm. I have worked with a few different, um, perpetrators and it's very difficult. It's very, I know. very, very, very difficult. I think it's an important conversation to have um, Fair enough. because I think there are people um, who have both done things that they didn't realize at the time. And then there are a lot of people who knowingly have committed acts. Um, but mm-hmm. I think it's something that we have to talk about as a society, you know, but it, it's difficult. It's difficult work to do. And um, as for like it, at clinical work, I think it's a tough specialty to try and take on. Yeah, it really is. Um, I also do work with an organization that serves children who have been sexually abused. Um, it's called the Firecracker Foundation, and I'm on their board of directors. And we see a lot of kids who are victims, kids who have been abused horribly as young children. And then some of those kids end up kind of reacting sexually to other kids. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, this might be 
a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old who starts doing things to their sibling or people at school that are completely inappropriate. And at that point, like, that's easier for me to kind of sympathize with that kid. Like, this is a kid who has been abused, and now they're, you know, they're reacting in this way. But even at that point, it's still really hard to get those kids treatment because they become, they get in the system as being kind of labeled as a sexually reactive kid and nobody wants to work with them. And they get labeled as being a perpetrator, basically, and treated as a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And then they grow up to be, you know, this violent (laughs) 60-year-old person who is preying on young children. And then at that point, you don't have any sympathy for that person. And, you know, you just want them to go to prison forever. And so I think the, the important thing here is really to work with our kids at really young ages, like those kids who need help and we haven't really gotten there yet. So, yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think you brought it up earlier that oftentimes, um, especially for men or boys, they might react to trauma externally. So it might look Mm -hmm. like conduct disorder. It might look like violence. Um, and then there, the trauma is not addressed because you're just trying to manage aggressive behaviors. Um, but what, (laughs) what a disservice to that child and, and other, um, people around that child who might, you know, then fall victim to something that, that. Mm-hmm. so, um, I'm really glad that you're doing the work that you're doing and that you're developing Thank you. some things out <laughs> in the community to, to help folks who are doing advocacy and, and working, um, in the communities. Cause I think, uh, it's just the start really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in your book, you kind of touch on, uh, that these, this, this idea of trauma reflexes where, trauma is not only in the brain, but can be in your, um, the rest of your body in your nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that I think is, is really controversial in the kind of science community, which I think is silly because people are, you know, like, Oh, trauma can't be stored in your body. Everything originates from your brain. But I mean, I really, so there's a book called the body keeps the score that was written by um, Bessel van der Kolk, and he's kind of a trauma psychiatrist. And um, But he talks a lot about this idea that your experiences can kind of be stored in your body in this way that they almost get stuck and that there's kind of a way to almost, you kind of relive it over and over and over until it gets unstuck. And so I'll, I'll give an example of this. When I was... I don't know, maybe seven or eight years old, I was held down in a swimming pool by like a 16 year old boy. And he was, I don't know if he was trying to drown me or what, but he was holding me underwater. And I was, I was trying to kick my legs to kick him off of me. And I had this like weird reflex, like for the rest of my life, that kind of felt like I was kicking my legs all the time. Mm -hmm. And I never knew what it was from. And until one time in therapy, I was talking about this and talking about, you know, I was having nightmares about this experience and I was just kind of beating myself up like, Oh, why am I still thinking about this thing that happened 25 years ago? It wasn't that bad. Mm. Um, and as I was talking about it, I started kicking my legs and I'm just like, what is going on? What is this? (laughs) And it's just, it, it sounds crazy, you know, especially like to a scientist, it sounds like this is, that this is just nuts, but it's 
it's like there was something about that that was kind of that memory was stored in my body of that kind of movement um, that I was trying to do to rescue myself, basically. Yeah, it's very, very strange. And so there are some treatment modalities. One's called somatic experiencing. A lot of people have a lot of positive results with yoga and other kind of body movement things um, to help kind of resolve trauma in the body um, that I think are, are really interesting and I hope are being studied more or at least being accepted more as acceptable treatments. You, uh, so you, you, when you first started to um, recover from mm-hmm. your trauma, uh, it was by sharing not the scientific stuff, but the actual personal story. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious on a scientific level, why is uh, human connection and social support uh, a strong therapy for people with trauma? Why, why is like the act of comfort and understanding scientifically crucial for healing? I mean, I think it just goes back to this kind of idea that humans are social creatures and we, we need social support to survive. And why that is, you know, it probably goes back to, you know, early, early in our evolution, we, you know, we are like really vulnerable creatures. We don't have shells and skeleton, you know, exoskeletons. And like, we're just these soft, like little piles of mush that can't really <laughs> handle. We can't handle like extreme heat or cold, or, you know, we can only last like three days without water. It's like <laughs> humans are just not very hardy in a lot of ways. I mean, I think a lot of ways we are, but I think we have kind of evolved mechanisms, you know, to, to kind of live in communities with people. And that helps us you know, rear our children and it helps us find resources and helps keep us alive. And so on a, on a really kind of basic level, we know that we need people to survive. I mean, you know, I've heard horrific stories of children who are like locked in a closet and, you know, given no social interaction, you know, from a very early age. And you just like can't survive that. And even if you hear about kind of in um, people who are incarcerated, um, being in solitary confinement for long periods of time, you, you really can't survive that. Like you will, you will die. And so, I mean, I think that's a really, really big part of it, of, of why that kind of social support is so important for healing. Um, just because on a really basic level, we need that um, anyway, not just to to deal with trauma and to deal with other things. We just need social support as a Period, basic right. need. And I don't think a lot of people think of it like that. We think of food and water and, you know, shelter as our basic needs. But I, I think social support is one of them, too. Yeah, I think you're right. I think most of us don't think about the value of social support. You know, for building out our day. It's like, I got to eat. Mm-hmm got to get to work, get home. And, you know, we also need to talk yeah, it's to Yeah, kind of like the last about, thing on right? the list. <laughs> when you have free time, you know, then you might do something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like a leisure activity to, right. that people think of. Right. That it's, you know, and it's because you can last longer without social support than you can last without food and water and air. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's why it doesn't seem as urgent to people. But, you know, over time it really can kind of erode on your health if you don't have it. Different question now. Um, <laughs> so in, in, in your book, uh, in the beginning, you, you state that uh, at an early age you were uh, labeled 
uh, like special and and except, exceptionally smart. Mm. <laughs> By some standards, I but guess. Uh, but you also, yeah. but you also felt different uh, than mm-hmm. everybody else at the same time. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there was a correlation between being labeled smart and and feeling different, and whether or not. Oh yeah. And whether or not like. When when it came to later in life, what you thought, uh, like with the church, what was right and what was wrong, and what you could talk about and what you couldn't talk about, uh, I wonder if there's like correlation there uh, between being labeled different and smart, and then and then taking what is right and wrong very seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, as a kid, most kids, all they want is to be able to just fit in. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to stand out in any way, you know, even if it is being really smart, which we would think is a good thing. But it's just I did feel different in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate to have kind of the resources that I had to be able to you know, get the education that I had and to be able to kind of go through life where, in a way that, you know, school wasn't difficult for me because it's such a huge part of a kid's life. And when you have difficulties at school, it's just it makes everything so much harder. And so while it was something that made me feel different and in a way that I didn't really want to at the time, I now, you know, I realized that I was really fortunate to be able to kind of get through that part of my life where at least I didn't have to to struggle in that. But I think that at the same time, it's one of the things that prevented me from getting help um, earlier in my life because, you know, people, especially with kids and college students, that's like all we're measured on is our performance in school. Are you doing well in school? Yes. Well, then you must not have any other problems. And so I think people weren't recognizing some of the other problems that I was having, Um, related to anxiety and sleep problems. And then later, you know, in my teen years, substance abuse and eating disorders and all of these other things that show up in different ways. No adults in my life really recognized it as a problem because I was doing good in school. And so, um, you know, that's, you know, another reason why it's important, I think, to talk about the ways that trauma can affect people because we think of it as, something that's, you know, completely going to derail someone's entire life. But a lot of people kind of maintain a sense of control over one part of their life and really excel in one part. You know, and for me, that was school. I was a kid who wanted to make the adults in my life and make them proud. And I was really kind of one of those like teacher's pet people. (laughs) And so I think that was part of it when I'm, you know, in any kind of system, whether it's a school or a church, it's like anything the teacher says, anything the pastor says, it's like that is kind of golden and I'll just soak it up. And I've become a, much more cynical now, I think, <laughs> in my old age. <laughs> Where it's like now it's like, ah, I don't believe anything anybody says. But <laughs> but as a kid, that was really, I was vulnerable in that way, I think. I think that's what it was. It, ma- it made me vulnerable to um, people who abused their power. What is EMDR? I had never heard this term before. Oh, EMDR is really cool. It's it's um it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So it's basically what it is is it's a form of therapy. Some people 
say that it's kind of like a mix between hypnosis and um, exposure therapy, um, where what you do is you follow either a light or a finger or something back and forth with your eyes um, while you think about a traumatic memory. And there's a whole protocol for it. It's not like, oh, just think of any kind of random trauma thing. You work with a therapist to identify a target memory over time, and you develop all of these kind of safety checks in place before you even start the process. Um, But I did this, and I found it so, so helpful in kind of processing some of my the, the memories that showed up most in my life, that the things that were showing up in my dreams and showing that were, you know, triggering me in other ways. Um, so it, and it's, yeah, it, it's really cool. And I've heard a lot of people um, say that they've had a lot of success with it, but um, you have to have a really kind of strong relationship with a therapist because mm. you, you are in a really vulnerable position to do something like that. That seems incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's something with the brain there. It's not has something to do with this, you know, moving your eyes back and forth. It's supposed to kind of stimulate both sides of your brain in a way that some people say it mimics REM sleep. Mm. Um, so when you're in REM sleep, you know, you and you can see these videos of people. You can see their eyeballs moving in mm-hmm. their head while they're yeah. sleeping, and that's like when you have all these dreams, and it's like your brain is doing something to kind of process memories and experiences and you're kind of intentionally doing that while you're awake that's kind of the idea behind it and i mean in my experience it absolutely works so that's really cool i'm wondering april if you have a message or something you'd like to share with maybe a survivor of a trauma that might be listening now who mm-hmm maybe hasn't talked about it or hasn't um, experienced healing yet or Mm -hmm. um, engaged in any treatment, if you have some, Mm -hmm. any kind of words for them. I mean, I think I would say that the pain that they're experiencing is valid and it's real. And there are ways to learn how to cope with it so it doesn't hurt so much. And just to know that they are worth that kind of help and that they deserve that kind of help and to try to just hang on as long as it takes to find that person or people who will be able to offer them that kind of help. Um, That was something I was, I didn't receive that kind of help. I didn't find somebody who knew how to help me until I was 25. And I'm lucky that I survived that long. Yeah. And I'm glad that I did. And I know a lot of people don't. And so I think that it's just, just knowing that it is possible to heal is, you know, that was really important to me because I thought, I'm just going to be suffering for the rest of my life. And I can't live like that. And nobody should have to live like that. And so, I mean, I think that healing is possible for everyone and it's never too late. Mm, it's never too late. Mm-hmm. I don't want this conversation to end 
I know. I'm very much, <laughs> I'm very much enjoying talking with you, April. Thank you so much. I am too. It's been great. <laughs> Do you have any uh, like last, lasting thoughts that you'd like the audience to know? Lasting thoughts? Oh. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> just what on anything? Yeah. <laughs> the theory of the universe. Right. Um, we can talk about that. Yeah. Shows you, we should uh, be not recording if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what I have learned is that it, it it really I think ties around this kind of social support thing, and to find people who see you and accept you for who you are where you are in your life. And if they don't, then, you know, sometimes you, you do have to cut ties with people, but surrounding yourself with supportive people. I mean, I think that's just so, so, so important. And that's kind of, I think, how I get through my days. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. April's book is Fortitude, and you can find it on Amazon, yes? Mm-hmm. Uh, where else can people find you? She has a TED Talk on YouTube. Yeah, my website is aprilpooley.com, A-P-R-Y-L-P-O-O-L-E-Y. And there's links to all that stuff on there, too. Now that the normal interview is over, I got some funnier questions. Well, not funnier, but (laughs) more more questions I may leave out that... Okay. uh, they're, They're real quick. Burning questions on Chris's mind. The important stuff. Oh. Like, did you ever start to watch X Files again? I did. Um, it, came, it, it came back <laughs> on Netflix a couple years ago, yeah. and yeah, I started watching it from the beginning. That was and like, I, I love it. I still love it. <laughs> that was like the first thing that I read in the book where I was like, no, don't give up on X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I definitely started started watching it again. <laughs> you, you don't have to answer, but uh, it kind of left it open in the book whether or not you ever reconciled with your mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody asks me that. Um, I I, I have I have very recently actually. Like, so I actually got divorced last year. It was about from, a year and two months ago or something from, from the the person in the book. Oh, yep. Wow. <laughs> um. So that's you know a whole other thing that I got through sober, and so like I'm just <laughs> wow. I'm really kind of proud of that. Like, yeah, wow, I went through a divorce you. and I didn't even drink. <laughs> good for you. Um. It was around that time that my mom reached out to me and we hadn't really had, it had been a few years that our relationship had been kind of rocky and she reached out to me to support me through my divorce. And I think in that, um, we kind of did reconcile in a lot of ways. And she had actually just, I think within the last six months now, had sent me an email um, apologizing for not supporting me when she had the opportunity to. And it kind of came out of nowhere. I was just Hmm. like, I had a friend read it. I was like, is this real? Where did this come from? Maybe she's in therapy. I don't know. Um, But it really meant a lot to me. And it it was really surprising, actually, because I had kind of given up. It was kind of like, well, you know, she's never going to understand. But um, it really kind of changed my mind about the fact that people maybe can change (laughs) and maybe can recognize their mistakes. So with all the music and stuff, um, Mm -hmm. while reading your book uh, in the, you know, 48 hours it 
it took me to read the book. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of music references and, and poetry and piano. Mm-hmm. There was this song that you don't know about, or you may, but I don't think so, <laughs> that uh, was constantly nagging. I, I kind of wanted to share something with you since you shared the okay. book. And I didn't write this song, but, <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you the name, gonna, but I'm going to beep it out. Mm. Uh, okay. You don't know the rights to the music? Well, no, because I don't, I feel like it's not anybody else's business. I'm going to oh, leave okay. this conversation okay. in that we're having, this little one. But um, the reason I, I'm very nervous about telling you this is because it's hard to share music with people, I think. You don't know how they're it gonna, is. You don't know how they're going to interpret it. Mm-hmm. But... There was just something like, and, and, and when this song came into my brain, when I was listening to it and I actually looked up the lyrics and I was like, ah, oh, that's not going to be good. She may interpret it wrong. Right. <laughs> so then I started finding, uh, I was like, maybe, maybe another song work, but this one just kept coming back and I wanted to be kind of genuine and it, it's a pretty heavy song as well. So you may, I don't know if you like heavy music, but I yeah, feel, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I feel like I wanted to at least share something that it, that it, I guess it's kind of like a mutual respect thing or just like you created something. I appreciate it. No, I think that's, that's super cool. I'm, I'm a hundred percent into it. <laughs> well, the song, I mean, I, yeah, the song is called. Okay. That sounds great. By the band. Okay. No, I have never, I can't mm-hmm. wait to listen to it. Um, again, I don't know how you're going to interpret it, but to me, uh, it it will forever be locked into your book for me, hmm. if that makes any sense. It does. If you were I making mean, a, I, a movie, that would be the like the intro credit roll. I don't know, oh. but just because I was reading, I, I literally for two days, all I didn't watch any TV. I just read your book, and then in between when I actually had to do some work at work, I, I was listening to this band, and this song kept coming up and, and hitting me in the face. And then I looked at the lyrics and I was like, for some reason I felt like it kind of applied to your book in a, in a way for me, maybe not for you, but for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really cool. Thank you. And not necessarily in a positive light either. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Oh uh, no, it absolutely makes sense. I listen to all kinds of music that, you know, it's, it's a lot of heavy music. You know, they're talking about, drugs and self-destruction and all this stuff and some people in my life are like why are you listening to this it's so angry and like you're not into that lifestyle anymore and it's just like I don't know it's just it kind of represents a part of an experience that I know and that I can relate to so I don't know I I definitely I I get that language of because I debated heavily communicating with music I debated heavily on whether or not to share this but I figure I Mm -hmm. why the fuck not (laughs) Because I really enjoyed your book, and I, I spent a lot of time trying to do this seriously, and to take you seriously, and to take what you did seriously, and what you went through seriously. And thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, no, thank you is really what it <laughs> what it should be. The song is zero. I hope you enjoy it, and email me or message me and tell me what you think. I will. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank April. you. I'm going to hit the record button now.
subscribe and listen to us on all the major streaming platforms and go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything and go to our website, recovereverything.com.